Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're watching a Christmas Eve special edition of the mother of all talk shows, which throughout this year has brought you some of the best guests, featured some of the best calls, and one or two of the best monologues to be found anywhere on air. And we've been rewarded by your loyalty and your ever-growing numbers of audience. It was a year uh, of mass murder. It was a year of blood and treasure trickling down the drain. It was a year when Western governments showed themselves to be venal and incompetent, almost in equal measure. We could live with a venal government if it made the trains run on time. We could live with an incompetent government if it had a heart, but our governments are heartless and useless as they have demonstrated on issue after issue all throughout the course of this last calendar year. Luckily, for now, and for as long as you support us, the mother of all talk shows will be here to provide the other side of the story, to arm you with the truth, to arm you with the arguments to make to your friends, to your workmates, to those that you interact with in your everyday life, so that we grow and grow and grow the population of conscientized, awake people. Not woke, but awake. That's what we aim for. You are watching a very special Christmas Eve with the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. It has been a hell of a year. Everyone watching already knows that. Twice a week throughout the year, we have brought to you the other side of the story, the different point of view. We have encouraged you to think more, to study more, and to discuss more with each other the great events through which we have been living. And my goodness, it has been working. We would regularly clock up around 1.7 million viewers, all or part of the mother of all talk shows at the beginning of 2023. We end 2023 disappointed if 3 million people haven't shared, watched in the experience that is the global university of the airwaves, the mother of all talk shows. I'm going to start at the end, i.e. right now. I'm going to ask you to imagine just how different the nativity scenes that you've watched in your children or your grandchildren's schools this year, how different the holy land of Palestine is today to that imagined in those nativity scenes. There, the stars were bright, the sky was clear. Mary and Joseph could pass untrammeled, no checkpoints, 
no danger of being gunned down in the road. There, Mary made it, albeit to a stable, rather than having to give birth, almost certainly a stillbirth, at the checkpoints through which those traveling between Jerusalem and Bethlehem are forced to endure. Even Nazareth, where the couple came from, Mary and Joseph, embarked from, is a city under siege, for it is still a Palestinian city, isolated, an island, surrounded by hostile Zionist crowds, always ready to pounce in a pogrom against the minority Palestinian community, even inside Israel proper, as they call it, Israel as recognized in 1948. But Bethlehem and Jerusalem are in the occupied West Bank. I want to take a moment to explain what that means. That means that every single government, every one, including the United States, including the United Kingdom, considers that territory to be illegally, militarily occupied territory. It has therefore a certain status in international law. The occupier may not occupy it in perpetuity. The West Bank and Jerusalem have been occupied since 1967, which is getting close to perpetuity. The occupier may not alter uh, the demography or the topography of the land which they temporarily occupied. That means they cannot demolish that which is there. That means that they cannot construct that which is not there. That means that they cannot alter the lives of the people whose lives they temporarily occupy. And if they do, they are committing a crime under international law. Now, normally crimes are followed by punishments. What's unique about Israeli crimes in Jerusalem and the West Bank is that they are followed not by punishment, but by reward. The perpetrator of the crime is endlessly rewarded with money and guns, international recognition, acceptance into every international fora. There'll be no Russia at the Olympic Games, but be sure Israel will be there. There'll be no Russia at the European Football Championships, but be sure Israel will be there. There'll be no Russia in the Eurovision Song Contest, but be sure Israel will be there. Israel is everywhere, apparently influential beyond all measure in the chanceries, in the parliaments, in the presidential palaces of every country in the Western world, despite every country in the Western world, considering them to be in illegal occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. There's a secondary implication of this international acceptance that this land is illegally occupied. It is this, that the United Nations must provide United Nations Relief and Works Agency to support the civilian population being temporarily illegally occupied by a foreign military. That would normally be sacrosanct. 
Not many people have the, what shall I say, chutzpah to murder officials of the United Nations, to destroy their works on the ground in the occupied territory. But the United Nations has lost more of its officials dead in the cold earth in just the last 75 days than it has lost in all of its existence since 1945 in any conflict. Just think about that. The third consequence is that not only is the United Nations charged with the legal duty to maintain and support the lives, the food needs, the educational needs, the health needs of the people temporarily occupied by a foreign military, it requires the international community as a matter of law to support and to advocate for the freeing of those people. Yet settlements in their hundreds of thousands of people strong are busily being created have been created and are now about to accelerate, and I quote, in Israeli government parlance, the industrialized settlement of the occupied West Bank in complete brazen violation of international law. These crimes are bad enough. The failure of the international community with all its legal responsibilities to respond to them with proper support for the occupied people and proper punishment for the people committing the crimes is the most long-running and egregious offense against international law, against all morality that we have seen anywhere in the world since the Second World War. And I haven't even started talking about Gaza yet. I will in a minute. I want to focus on the little town of Bethlehem, about which my own children sing so sweetly. The little town of Bethlehem is under such unremitting military siege and the regular murder of those traveling to and from it that the church of the nativity where Jesus was born, the Jesus we're all remembering tomorrow, where he was born, has changed its nativity scene and filled it with rubble and placed the baby Jesus in a kafir at one and the same time, the now symbol of liberation and resistance to injustice all over the world and an actual crime to wear in the city of Berlin. And if Cruella de Vil, the erstwhile British Home Secretary, had got her way, the British courts would now be clogged up with people on trial for having worn that kafir. Because Jesus was a Palestinian, you see. He was born in Palestine. He was a Palestinian Jew. All the Palestinians were Palestinian 
Jews before they converted, some to Christianity, others to Islam. But they were all Palestinian Jews. And so when you hear people trying to persuade you that standing up for the Palestinians is somehow an act of anti-Semitism, remember, it's the Palestinians, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim, who are the Semites. It is literally not possible to be against yourself. This land, the West Bank, Jerusalem, is internationally recognized as Palestinian land. And the fact that your government has done nothing, absolutely nothing, in fact, worse than nothing, to stand up for the laws they themselves passed in relation to it is a very great crime indeed, for which they will never be forgiven, certainly not on the last day, on the judgment day, but if I have any breath left, I'll continue to fight for them to be held to account in this earthly life. Let me turn to Gaza. It is almost beyond description. What is happening, what the governments of the West have not just allowed to happen, but have facilitated in the happening. All four horsemen of the apocalypse are riding hard through Gaza this evening, this Christmas Eve. War, famine, pestilence, disease, to which I add biblical flooding, a deluge, the likes of which Noah himself took to the waterways to save humanity, and the animal kingdom, the stories you tell your own children. The Palestinians are up to their waist in waste water. All of the sewage systems have been completely obliterated. All fresh water has been stopped from flowing into the Gaza Strip, where 2.3 million people still live, though many have died, and many more, it would appear, are certain to die. No water, no electricity, no sewage system. An outbreak of epidemics like hepatitis spreading everywhere amongst the ruins, in the refugee camps, in the destroyed hospitals, in the alleyways, amongst the rubble, amongst the bodies, human and animal, in the Gaza Strip. Disease, famine, people are dying literally of hunger. No food, no water, no power, no sewage system, no medicine, no electricity in the one-third of Gaza's hospitals that are still operating at all. The Kuwaiti hospital, destroyed. The Indonesian hospital, destroyed. The entire medical staff of the Kamal Adwan hospital, taken away, stripped 
bare, naked, and taken away at gunpoint. Children left literally to starve to death, to die of thirst in a hospital. Children and women in a United Nations school executed at point-blank range by invading Israeli soldiers. Endless bombardment of dumb, unguided bombs, 2,000 pounds apiece, landing on people's houses, obliterating the lucky ones, crushing slowly to death the more unlucky ones. Entire families, entire bloodlines being wiped out as a matter of deliberate targeting. The Israelis make no bones about it. They are thinning out in their fascistic parlance. Are the Palestinian population, the indigenous population, they didn't arrive from Brooklyn or from London or from Paris. They have lived there for centuries upon centuries are being thinned out. The lawn is being mowed, by which they mean cutting the heads off the daisies. The daisies being the children and the childbearing women of Palestinians that were yet to come. All of this isn't just going on in front of our eyes. It's going on with the active collaboration of our governments. When you hear Kamala Harris or Anthony Blinken or David Cameron expressing concern over the civilian casualties in Gaza, be sure they're only saying that because they know that they are legally culpable for the genocide which is underway. And that one day, illegal action might just entrap them in that culpability. They want to be able to point to the day when they express their concern about what is happening. Your government, my government, are up to their necks in the blood of the people of Gaza. Every bomb that falls was given to Israel by the same Joe Biden who claims now to be concerned about the impact of the bombs that he gave them. Every rocket, every shell was given by the U.S. taxpayer to Netanyahu to carry out this greatest of all crimes since the Second World War. And actually, many of them came through the British military base in Cyprus. Who knew that there's a little part of Cyprus, independent since 1960, which still belongs to Britain, and out of which flies every hour military aircraft laden with one presumes they will not say what it's laden with, even to members of the British Parliament, 
they will not say, but presumably laden with military war material, which then ends up beheading children in Gaza. Just think about that. Imagine having that on your conscience. Well, I have it on my conscience. Even though I'm giving every breath that God gives me to try and stop it, the fact that it's taking place out of my country with my government's collaboration, active collaboration, is something that weighs heavily on me. And that's why I will never stop crying out against it, as I have done for more than 50, five, zero, 50 years. And the last word on my lips will be Palestine. That, I promise you. Now, of course, the year began with a different war raging, a different story headlining, with a different set of twibbons and ribbons and buildings lit up in yellow and blue, a different war on the corner flags of every football stadium, flashing up on the electronic scoreboards of every football stadium, rigging the Eurovision and so on in order to present uh, the overwhelming public and governmental sympathy for the poor people of Ukraine. Of course, it helped that they were blonde-haired and blue-eyed and European. That helped a lot, trust me. Special channels in the airport where a lady sat to guide them in the byways of the social security system. How to quickly get a local authority house, how to get a job, how to access the public services that actually a large number of our own people are unable routinely to access. Cut after cut to every public service for us, but for the Ukrainian refugees, five million of them, it was the fast track all the way. I labor this point because what happened to all the Ukraine ribbons? It's almost as if somebody somewhere triggered that mass hysteria over Ukraine, a country about which virtually none of us knew anything at all, even where it was. Ask an American down in Alabama where Ukraine is they'll have real difficulty in distinguishing it from Timbuktu. But it's almost as if somebody switched on and the same people switched it off. First it was, for as long as it takes, we'll give everything, do anything for Ukraine. And then it became, for as long as we can, we'll give what we can and do what we can for the Ukraine. And even that is now subsumed in a nothingness. 
Ukrainian people have been sacrificed in their hundreds of thousands. They have been sacrificed on the altar of the American obsession to destroy Russia, to break up Russia, to balkanize it into tiny pieces and steal its resources as once they thought they could do forever when Russia was lying drunk on the floor in the person of Boris Yeltsin, having its pockets picked by all and sundry. But now that that has completely failed, now that Russia has defeated NATO and all those NATO armies that were present in one way or another in the proxy war against Russia, decided to draw a veil over it. What else could they do? They could hardly explain to you that your government committed national economic suicide for a war in Ukraine which has now been lost. They can hardly explain how they were going to liberate all of Ukraine and then some when the war has been lost. How can they explain that? That would be to declare that NATO, that the United States are not what they were cracked up to be, not what they tried to fool us into believing. They were best to move on. And move on, they have. Now they've moved from Eastern Europe uh, to the Eastern Mediterranean. Now they have moved all of their pieces, their war chess pieces, onto a new battleground in the Middle East. And no good will come of it. There'll be no happier an ending there than there has been in the Ukraine. Because the truth is, the world has changed irrevocably. The tectonic plates have shifted. Power once and for centuries. The overwhelming prerogative of Western European and North American civilization is over. The sun has risen in the east. And unfortunately for us who have to live here, it's setting in the west. Take a look at Bethlehem under the rubble. This is the mother of all talk shows. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. He's a professor of great eminence and he joins us now on the Mother of All Talk Shows. Professor Norman, thanks uh, for being with us. I have resisted uh, for decades, actually, uh, sometimes under instruction from my superiors, uh, allusions uh, between Gaza and the Warsaw Ghetto, between Gaza and the camps and so on. But hasn't Gaza now become a death camp? I think that's an accurate description. I think from 2006 or earlier, it was uh, technically accurate to describe Gaza as a concentration camp. Uh, Already in 2003, the respected Hebrew University professor, Baruch Kimmerling, described Gaza as, quote, the largest concentration camp ever. Uh, Giora Island, who's a senior official in Israeli in the Israeli government and Israeli elite circles, Georg uh, Island described Gaza as, quote, a huge concentration camp. And now that was before, in the case of Professor Kimmerling and the case of Island, that was before the blockade had been ratcheted up in 2006 and then ratcheted up another notch in 2007. So already before the brutal blockade of Gaza, which Richard Goldstone himself in the Goldstone report after Operation Cast Lead, he said it likely rose to a, quote, crime against humanity. So well before the developments I just described, the um, a senior Israeli professor, a senior Israeli official, uh, was describing Gaza as a concentration camp. However, I do think it's correct to say at this point, it's no longer only, if we can use that qualification, it's not only a concentration camp, but it's become a death camp. Now, for those of those of your listeners who recoil at that description, I would ask them to respond to the following question. On October 8th, three of Israel's senior officials stated the following. Number one, Chaim Herzog, the president of Israel, stated that Israel would not distinguish between Hamas and civilians. He said they voted for Hamas, meaning the civilians. They didn't overthrow Hamas, and therefore they bear the same responsibility for the events of October 7th as Hamas itself. Statement number two was by the Israeli Defense Minister Gallant. He said, henceforth, we're not going to allow any food, water, fuel, or electricity into Gaza. 
And statement number three was by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who said that this was going to probably be the longest, as they call it, operation that Israel has had to conduct. Now, Operation Protective Edge in 2014, it lasted 51 days. So let's add up the three statements. Number one, we're not distinguishing between civilians and combatants. Number two, we're not allowing any food, water, electricity, or fuel into Gaza for combatants and for the 2.3 million civilians, of whom half are children. And number three, we expect that this operation will go on for a minimum 51 plus days. So if you add up those three statements and you connect the dots, I would ask you listeners to respond to the question, how can that not be described as a genocide? How can that not be described as a murder warrant for the 2.3 million people in Gaza, of whom half are children, and about 70% are refugees from the 1948 war and their descendants. Now, it is true around the edges, around the narrowest of margins, the U.S. has put some pressure on Biden basically, excuse me, some pressure on the Israeli government by Biden uh, and Lincoln, so as I, so as it doesn't look so horrible on the television screen, the computer screen. But that, the impact of those, uh, uh, those marginal efforts are so insignificant that I don't think they need, at this point, at this point, they need to be factored in or in any way dilute the fact that what's going on now in Gaza is a genocide. The the fighting or the killing uh, rather stepped up rather than decreased after Blinken's visit. One was told in the briefings that he was going to ask for a pause, for uh, a brief ceasefire, and so on. But actually, this very evening, it's the heaviest bombardment of the war. We saw the ludicrous story today uh, in the New York Times, I think, uh, that Biden had asked Netanyahu to use smaller bombs. Uh, I agree with you that at the margin, A small bomb is marginally better than a big one, will kill marginally fewer, if you're lucky, uh, than a big bomb uh, will. But why is Netanyahu treating uh, Blinken, and by extension Biden, with such disdain? There are several points you made which require a response. Number one, there is this kind of terminology that has entered into the uh, current round of murder, high-tech murder. Uh, the first terminological addition has been this expression of humanitarian pause. It's very hard to make sense of exactly what the humanitarian pause means. 
it seems to mean that you're going to allow 15 minutes to let the to fatten up the turkey before you kill it. A humanitarian pause is something along the lines of giving a prisoner scheduled next morning for the electric chair, giving them a last meal. What is the point of a humanitarian pause of 15 minutes of a half hour if the bombing is going to directly resume and just murder the people who a moment ago benefited from a glass of water or a cheese sandwich. The issue is not a humanitarian pause. The issue is a ceasefire. And we shouldn't allow ourselves to be distracted by this idiotic terminology. The demand has been by the international community and its various constituents for a ceasefire. Number two is talk about a big bomb versus a little bomb. The whole thing at some level is completely insane because of aspects of international law that are insane. So let's take the example of Jabalia. Israel has been dropping, as it did in Shujaya during Operation Protective Edge, Israel has been dropping 2,000-pound bombs in, in uh, Jabalia refugee camp. Jabalia refugee camp is among the densest populated refugee camps in among the densely populated, most densely populated places, places on Earth. Okay, and Israel's pretexts are number one, it always, it always finds a Hamas militant, usually a Hamas militant leader, or the tunnels that they're, they claim to be targeting. Now, under international law, there are three basic principles. There's the principle of distinction, there's the principle of discrimination, and there's the principle of disproportionality. I'm using the D for each of them so your listeners can follow. The principle of distinction, every one of your listeners knows. It simply means you're not allowed to target civilians or civilian sites, hospitals, schools, homes. You can only target military uh, combatants or military sites. That's the most basic principle of international law. The second principle is the principle of discrimination. Discrimination simply means you can't use a weapon that cannot discriminate between civilians and combatants. Let's say poison gas. Poison gas just spreads, can't contain its spread, can't dis distinguish between civilians and combatants. Therefore, it's illegal under international law. And then there's this third principle called disproportionality or proportionality. I use disproportionality because of the D, the alliterative aspect. What does disproportionality mean? It simply means if, you, uh, if you're targeting a legitimate military site, the, I hate these expressions, but I have to use them. The collateral damage to civilians has to be proportional to the value of the military target. So if you're going to target two combatants who happen to be lodged in a civilian home, and there are five civilians in that home, you have to make the judgment 
is the value of your target to combatants sufficiently great as to justify killing three civilians? That's the principle of proportionality. The value of the military target has to be proportional to the collateral damage to civilians. Okay, but now you're dropping 2,000 pound bombs in the middle of a densely populated refugee camp. How could any principle of proportionality possibly justify that? Killing one Hamas militant and in the process killing 200 civilians in Jabalia, I think the figure was 195. And yet, when you open up the newspapers or you listen to the pundits, they bring on all of these learned experts in what's called IHL, International Humanitarian Law, or the laws of war, who say this is a very difficult question of proportionality. And when I listen to that, it shows you how rotten, how insane this whole idea of the laws of war are. If people can honestly believe dropping 2,000 pound bombs in refugee camps is a complicated legal question. To me, that is straight out insane. And I would add, if you were to go to any of my classes, because I teach the laws of war, international humanitarian law, and if you asked anyone in the class, according to the terms of proportionality, which is a very vague term, can killing 200 civilians in a refugee camp be justified by the fact that you want to hit a tunnel or a Hamas militant, I could say with certainty that of a class of 40, you couldn't find more than one student who would defend such insanity. You could not find it because we've discussed it in my class many times these hypotheticals. And yet, when you get out of a class which has a normal sense of right and wrong, and then you turn to these so-called experts, you just want to wretch. You want to wretch when you hear these kinds of expert deliberations on whether or not, the other day, two days ago, there was an article in The Guardian, and it was a question of Jabalia. And at the very end, of, you, your listeners can find it, it was just two days ago. At the very end of the article, they have a woman expert in international humanitarian law, and she says, yes, this is a tough question. No, it's not a tough question. You're a moral idiot. There's nothing tough about that question. You're a moral idiot if you think that's a tough question. Now, let me turn now to the third question, the third aspect of the question you asked. 
And the question with Blinken and uh, Biden and why they aren't putting more pressure on Israel. First of all, let's stop with the silliness. Israel suffered a huge blow on October 7th in terms of its vaunted security services, its commandos, you know, the raid on Entebbe and all the claims made about Israel's brilliant uh, um, intelligence system. It was a disaster. It's not it was a lot more than a sleep at the switch, you know. So that's number one. Number two, Biden immediately gave them $14 billion. Number three, there were aircraft carriers sent by the United States. Don't tell me, don't tell me Biden and Blinken were unable to say to the Prime Minister of Israel, listen, buddy, you just effed up royally on October 7th. We're pulling your chestnuts from the fire. We're holding up any action in the United Nations. Don't tell me that you're not going to allow for a humanitarian pause. If the United States wanted to put its foot down with Israel, it could put its foot down with Israel. It chooses not to. And for each side, it's a game. For Netanyahu, it gets to show he's how strong he is. You remember that interview on October 9th, roughly, with Naftali Bennett, uh, with the British broadcaster, where he says, we're lions, we're lions, we're lions. So Netanyahu gets to play that role. You know, we told the United States no. And the United States gets to play the role of the pig with white gloves. Gets to say, you see, we tried. We did our best. No, you didn't do your best. It's all theatrics. It's all show. And it's the same thing with using smaller bombs. It doesn't look good. It's not a good optic. If you go to YouTube, you'll get images of what a 2,000 bomb, 2,000 pound bomb looks like. And I posted in my website today. And that's not a good picture. It's not a good, as they like to say, I hate all these expressions, but I'll use them. It's not a good optic. When you take, you superimpose all the smoke and flames from that 2,000 pound bomb, and in your mind, you superimpose it on a densely populated refugee camp, half of which consists of children, not a good optic. So Biden opens up the Times, and the Times says Israel dropped two 2,000 pound bombs on Jabalia, and he says, no doesn't look good. So he says to Israel, use smaller bombs. Oh, let's use... um... Unbelievable. Now, uh, speaking of bombs, uh, you and I and many uh, people close to the subject have known ever since the brave uh, whistleblower Mordechai Vanunu still uh, held uh, today, uh, decades later, having been in solitary confinement for 20 years or so. We know from him uh, in London, he blew the whistle, uh, that Israel was in possession of the nuclear bomb. But Israel has always denied this, and nobody in the international system has ever asked to inspect their nuclear weapons facility. No one's ever asked them to sign the 
NPT, Non-Proliferation Treaty. No one's ever asked them to be visited by the IAEA, all the things that they have done to others, Iraq, Iran, and others. Um, but today, uh, the former information minister gave us some pretty big information, didn't he? He gave the public, anyway, some pretty big information. He admitted on TV uh, that Israel dropping a nuclear bomb on Gaza was one of the options on the table. How do you think that's going to play? First of all, I don't think they can do that because of the blowback. It's not as if Gaza is out on a desert island. I do think, now, I want to preface what I'm about to say. Uh, I have no knowledge of military affairs, and I say it with no shame. Military affairs has never been my cup of tea, and I'm not going to pretend to be a, uh, a Rommel or a Montgomery. Uh, that's not me. On the other hand, as a rational matter, it doesn't seem to me possible that Israel can fight a war on two fronts. Actually, barely, Israel can barely fight a war on one front. In 2006, when Israel in, uh, went to war in Lebanon, uh, the war lasted 34 days, sometimes called the Lebanon War II. Uh, the head of the Hezbollah, Nasrallah, called it the divine victory, uh, uh, whatever you call it. Uh, Israel brought, my memory is it brought 30,000 troops to the Lebanese front, but it did not want to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the party of God. And there, I think, uh, uh, Syed Nasrallah in his speech, uh, not trying to be demagogic about it, uh, but I think he was correct. He said the Israeli army is only capable of committing massacres. It's, not a, it's no longer a fighting force. And that's why it held off so long in Gaza. It was, let me get back to Lebanon. In Lebanon in 2006, it didn't, inv it didn't invade Lebanon on the ground, a ground invasion. It didn't do it until the last 72 hours. And at that point, the Israelis were desperate because they didn't want to send a ground force into uh uh, Lebanon. You don't want to tangle with the party of God. That's not a smart move. So they already asked Condoleezza Rice, who was the um, uh, Secretary of State at the time, they asked her to get an, in a uh, UN resolution for a ceasefire. Because if you had a choice between a ceasefire and the party of God, if you have any prudence, you choose a ceasefire. And then when the war was already over, Israel sent its troops into Lebanon. They flew across the terrain to the Latani River for a photo op to show that we invaded Lebanon. And the Hezbollah's reaction was, in the last day of the war, it fired 10,000, my memory is, my memory is pretty good on this, fired 10,000 rockets, the largest number uh, in those 34 days, to transmit the message to Israel, <laughs> you didn't win. You know, in the case of the uh, current situation, Israel waited about three weeks to just pulverize the place the kingdom come before it's willing to send in its ground forces. How far it's sent them in, I don't know. How significant the Hamas resistance will be, I don't know. I don't think one should uh, 
have too high expectations from Hamas um, in terms of its ability once that place has been pulverized uh, to carry out a significant resistance. Uh, the other fact is the, the uh, strategy of the uh, Israeli army, or at least one of the strategies that's been discussed, is to seal off the northern sector to bomb the area connecting the northern sector to the southern sector, the border, the, the provisional border between the northern sector and the southern sector, and thereby seal, seal off all the tunnels and then leave the militants who are in the tunnels, leave them there to begin to suffocate or starve and then force them out. I Again, I don't know anything about military affairs, but that seems like a plausible strategy. And there's no way that, speaking as a non-military person, uh, there seems to be no way that uh, Hamas will be able to counter that. Uh, the only possibility is, uh, which now seems to be a slim possibility, that the party, of, that the Hezbollah will enter in a significant way uh, if it seems like the cause is going to go down to utter and total defeat. Uh, we don't know. I think that Nasrallah's speech, I wrote to my friends, comrades, uh, I said, I'm hoping for a miracle. Well, it wasn't a miracle, and that just gives further proof that miracles don't happen in this world. Uh, he was an the, uh, Hezbollah is an impossible situation, because if they do something, Lebanon is going to be leveled, mm -hmm. and the people will turn against Hezbollah. Uh, and also, it's unlikely that Iran wants a broader war now, because just on the eve of the war, they had that deal between the $6 billion and releasing the hostages, which no doubt in Iran's mind was going to pave the way to some sort of uh, rapprochement, not a significant one, but some sort of rapprochement with the United States. So they don't want a broader war either. It's a very tough situation now. Uh, however, one thing I would say is, going back to your original question, uh, Israel cannot fight a two-front war. Now, it can't use nuclear weapons in Lebanon because of the blowback. You know, the atmosphere will be, anyone who knows anything about nuclear weapons, the atmosphere will be completely contaminated. Uh, whether it can use, there is, I've read, because as I say, I teach the laws of war, there is some discussion about the capacity of what are called tactical or limited nuclear weapons to contain the blowback, the um, radiation, contamination, and so forth. If such weapons exist, uh, there is a possibility they'll, they'll use it in Iran. Uh, and of course, that should be cause for significant, <laughs> to say the least, significant concern. Um, but that all was premised on uh, the Hezbollah opening up a second front, which Troyes Nisrallah did to claim it had you will recall he said that a quarter of the Israeli Air Force is now directed to the north, that half the troops are stationed in the north, and he did everything he can 
to convey that he's doing something. But I talked to many people afterwards, and they were very disappointed in Nasrallah's speech, even though realistically, he didn't really have many options. He didn't really have any options. So it's a, it's a very tough, it's a tough situation. Uh, on the other tough, hand, tough, tough, tough situation indeed. Professor, uh, I told everyone about the Amazon number one uh, bestseller that you've got now. Uh, just remind me of the title and uh, anywhere else that they can get it, because some people don't like to deal with Amazon, uh, because it's very, very important that people read your book. Okay, the title of the book is Gaza, an Inquest into its Martyrdom, and it's published by University of California Press. I don't think any bookstores carry it, unsurprisingly, uh, but people can use their creativity and figure out options other than Amazon. I'm not aware of them because I, I just publish books and then move on. I don't know anything about the mechanics. Well, more power to your elbow. Professor Norman Finkelstein, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. The Honorable Craig Murray, thank you for joining us. Um, before I... Uh, ask you where you are, you might not want to tell me because I did hear you were in Geneva uh, seeking sanctuary. Uh, let's uh, look at the 106th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, uh, which falls this month. <coughs> it is the case, isn't it, that Britain is the author of all this tragedy? Well, it's certainly true that the Balfour Declaration um, was the, the first um, practical step to the creation of the uh, Zionist state. And of course, Britain was given the mandate by the uh, United Nations to look after Palestine and, uh, and failed, to, failed to do so. Uh, and I, I think, of course, the concept of a, a European colonial settlement in the Middle East uh, was very much in line with with British imperial <coughs> ambition. Yes, they wanted, didn't they, uh, a little loyal Ulster in the Middle East. And that's what it was for us very briefly uh, and has been for the United States ever since. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely uh, correct. And... Um, I think it's very important that we we see it in that context that, that Israel is a, a a European colonial settlement in in effect, uh, which has become, if you like, the um, uh, the wedge end of American policy in a regime which it's determined to dominate uh, because of because of hydrocarbons essentially. Um, so so often international politics. And was back to hydrocarbons uh, when, when all all else is stripped there. Although uh, oddly, uh, given that Israel is an agent of the U.S. rather than the other way around, somehow it all seems to have fed back to the metropolis, uh, and uh, American politicians are prepared to uh, even people who called themselves anti-war 
call themselves progressive. They're, they're prepared to support anything that Israel does. It's quite extraordinary. I, th I mean, I think the most striking thing outside, of course, of the terrible events in, in Gaza, the most striking thing happening in the world over this last three, four weeks has been the total dislocation of, of politicians from the people. We have a political class across the Western world, uh, which is absolutely enslaved to, to Israel, uh, is prepared to excuse the most terrible, imaginable crimes uh, if it's done by Israel, is prepared to countenance genocide, uh, is prepared to set aside every value they pretend they stand for, um, in the teeth of fierce popular opposition. And it's very difficult to put together exactly how this has happened. Um, in the United States, it's partly due to the Christian Zionist strength and the Christian Zionist vote. Everywhere it's due to um, financial support from, from Zionist lobbyist groups. Um, but also, it, it appears that politicians have got themselves into a situation where they just don't mix and socialize with anybody for whom support for Israel is not an absolute article of faith. That they, they just don't meet people who have uh, a different view. And they are entirely disconcerted, I think, to find that you know a, a large majority uh, of people does not believe, do not believe that, that Zionism justifies the genocide of the Palestinians. Craig, I'm so old. I remember when the Foreign Office, uh, for which you were a distinguished servant, <coughs> was filled with people uh, who took a very different position uh, towards Israel uh, than we're seeing now from Rishi Sunak's government. I would meet officials in the Foreign Office, some of them very high officials, uh, who didn't have views much different from you and me on this subject. What happened? I think um, those people got, got weeded out. Uh, I think there was an increasing politicization of the Foreign Office, particularly uh, I'm the civil service in general, but also of the Foreign Office. Um, I may have played a small part in that by, by accident. When, when I uh, was uh, sacked by the Foreign Office for my commitment to human rights and my opposition to extraordinary rendition and torture, uh, the Foreign Office had a seminar uh, to which friends of mine still in the office were, were participants. And the, uh, the subject of that seminar was how to stop people like Craig Murray ever getting into the Foreign Office again. Uh, so I I, I think there has been a, a, a politicization of the service, making certain that people with, you know, anti-Zionist views would not get would not get in. Uh, but there's also been a tremendous deprofessionalization. I, I, I mean, you used to have to be a fluent Arabic speaker, for example, to serve in any senior position in the Arab states, or fluent Russian speaker to speak, you know, to serve in Russia, that kind of thing. You, you had to have a knowledge and understanding of geography and history and culture, and all of the, the infrastructure that supported that expertise, uh, which was extremely expensive. Uh, it's all been got rid of, uh, be, you know, in, as, as savings and cuts. So you, you you now have, you know, rather amateur pick box civil servants who, who run the foreign office. 
It is extraordinary. I mean, uh, from the days of Lawrence of Arabia, uh, a section of the British elite loved the Arabs. Now they seem to hate them. Yes, no, you'd have to conclude that. Uh, it, it, it is... Uh, it, and, and don't understand them. You, you, you know, our, our, our lack of, of knowledge and expertise of crucial parts of the world has, has become a real problem for the United Kingdom. Now, uh, those of us who love you and follow you closely know that you've had your own travails. Um, I don't know how much you're able to say, but do please say what you can. Yeah, I was, um, I was stopped... Um, I'm arriving back from Iceland from a meeting of the an international meeting of the coordination group of the um, uh, of the campaign against the extradition of Julian Assange. Uh, I was stopped uh, at Glasgow Airport under Schedule Seven of the anti-terrorism laws uh, and told I was being investigated for terrorism. I therefore was not entitled to legal advice. Uh, I was told I was. Uh, I, I had no right to remain silent. And I was asked questions uh, both about the Assange campaign and WikiLeaks and about my support for uh, Palestine. Um, subsequently, I was told that I am under investigation. I received written confirmation that I am subject to a terrorism investigation, which is is ludicrous because, as you know, I'm I'm close to pacifist. I, I'm not an absolute pacifist, but I, I, I've been against war and violence my entire life. Um, and rather than uh, having you know already spent four months of my life in prison on on, on a ludicrous pretext, um, I wasn't going to stay stay around for him to do it to me again. So I decided uh, to come here for, to Switzerland and, and visit the United Nations and also put in a a formal complaint about my treatment to the United Nations, which I which I have done. And what's your status now? Are you seeking political asylum there? I'm I'm waiting at the moment um, while uh, my legal team in Scotland, headed by Arma Anwar, um, uh, while they try to clarify, you know, what what is this this ludicrous nonsense of, of a terrorism investigation. So um, uh, it, it, it may be this is just another piece of, of police harassment which is going to blow over. Uh, but and, and, you know, until that becomes clear, uh, I'm, I'm going to stay at the country. But I, I'm not at this stage uh, applying for political asylum. I think I'll avoid Glasgow Airport when I come back to the country myself. Although it happened to our colleague Kit Clarenberg at Luton Airport. So it seems... There's no hiding place from this kind of absurdity. It's happened to it happened to um, Joanna Ross, who used to um, work for Sputnik in uh, Edinburgh, uh, who's a very nice lady who certainly has no connection to uh, terrorism. It happened to Vanessa Bealey. Uh, it happened to Professor John Lockland. Uh, who has worked for many members of the European Parliament, for example, and their officers, and and and, and is is quite a substantial figure. Again, with no no earthly connection to terrorism. Um, I've about six other journalists who have contacted me. Of course, if you work for the BBC or the Guardian, this isn't going to happen to you. But if you're anywhere in the uh, alternative media, if you're anybody putting out a view uh, contrary to that sanctioned by the state. 
then you're liable to be stopped. And and of course, because these are anti-terrorism powers, uh, it gives them enormous rights. All my electronics were seized uh, that they've gone through my entire life. Um, uh, and, and of course, I'm not a terrorist, I'm a journalist, but they're doing this systematically against journalists who, who don't tow the neocon line. I mean, bluntly, I'm very surprised they haven't done it to you yet, George. I expect you. Uh, maybe you're just too high profile. I don't know. But uh, it, it's very... Well, maybe, it, it's become uh, maybe, very I, maybe I just haven't been home yet. I just haven't come home yet. Uh, uh, Craig, uh, the, uh, Lenin was in exile in Switzerland, in, in uh, Geneva, I think. And he went on to um, bring about a successful revolution. Maybe you'll end up doing the same. Heaven knows we need one. We, 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 we certainly do. And I, I, should, um, I should be delighted for that. But I, I, no, I shan't, be, I shan't be returning to the Finland station <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> well, Waverley Station then. <laughs> You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. You're watching a Christmas Eve special edition of the Mother of All Talk Shows, which throughout this year has brought you some of the best guests, featured some of the best calls, and one or two of the best monologues to be found anywhere on air. And we've been rewarded by your loyalty and your ever-growing numbers of audience. It was a year uh, of mass murder. It was a year of blood and treasure trickling down the drain. It was a year when Western governments showed themselves to be venal and incompetent, almost in equal measure. We could live with a venal government if it made the trains run on time. We could live with an incompetent government if it had a heart but our governments are heartless and useless as they have demonstrated on issue after issue all throughout the course of this last calendar year. Luckily, for now and for as long as you support us, the mother of all talk shows will be here to provide the other side of the story, to arm you with the truth, to arm you with the arguments to make to your friends, to your workmates, to those that you interact with in your everyday life so that we grow and grow and grow the population of conscientized, awake people. Not woke, but awake. That's what we aim for. You are watching a very special Christmas Eve with the mother of all talk shows. Rachel Blevins. Rachel, welcome back. A warm welcome indeed uh, to you. We've missed you uh, very much. Uh, I want to ask you, first of all, uh, about Mr. Lavrov's uh, visit to Tehran. Uh, what's the word on the street about the importance of that visit? 
Well, thank you, George. It's always good to be back. And, you know, it's interesting to see the way that things are shaping up right now, because I know over the last year or so, we've been talking about this increasingly multipolar world where you have countries like Russia and like China playing a big role. And it's not just about the United States bossing around the rest of the world and deciding which country goes to war and which government is overthrown. And so I think it's notable to see in the case of what we're seeing in Gaza right now, just a few weeks ago, you had Russia and China as the top countries that were calling for a ceasefire, calling for solutions for a Palestinian state to be recognized so that we don't keep going through this same cycle of endless violence that leaves thousands of Palestinians dead as we are seeing right now. So when it comes to Lavrov's visit, I do expect to see that there will be talks there, but I think more so it is about the message that this is sending to the West right now, because immediately you had the United States sending Antony Blinken to Israel. He's made at least a couple trips there. Then you had them sending Joe Biden to Israel. And in doing so, the U.S. is showing that it has this ironclad support for Israel. But when Antony Blinken came back from his first trip there, even as Israel is killing children by the hundreds at the time, now it's getting into the thousands, Blinken sat there and he told reporters what sets the U.S. and Israel apart from other countries in the world. And he's talking about Hamas, but he's also talking about countries like Russia and China, is that he says that the U.S. and Israel follow international law. Now, that's certainly not what we're seeing, but I do think it is notable that we're in a situation where you've got Russia saying, okay, you're going to send your diplomats. We will send our diplomats too, but we will send them to a very strategic country that we know that the United States does not want to see war with, even if it acts like it does sometimes. Now, uh, Joe Biden traveled nearly 8,000 miles to bear hug this maniac Netanyahu in the middle of his killing spree. Is he not worried? Is the United States not worried? Uh, what, well, to put it mildly, is a bad case of over identification uh, with a power, a regime uh, that most people in the world regard as repugnant and getting on for half, if not more than half, of Israelis considered to be repugnant. It's only a couple of weeks ago, there were millions on the streets in Israel demanding uh, the resignation of the man that Biden, a man in his dotage, flew all that way just to give him a hug. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think Biden's in a little bit of a difficult place right now. I don't feel sorry for him, though, because he has made his bed on this all around. But if there's anything we've seen in U.S. politics, it's that in order to get anywhere, these politicians must stand with Israel. And right now that means standing with Netanyahu. And so Biden is kind of on this tightrope where he's having to make sure that his loyalty to Israel is very clear and that the world is seeing it. But I do think it was notable that at the time of his trip, 
you had this talk of a possible Israeli ground invasion. Now, we obviously still have that talk, but you have Biden going in and it seems as though he's trying to kind of smooth things out a little bit. Maybe he's telling Netanyahu to kind of hold off a little bit because he knows that any kind of a ground invasion is going to be incredibly bloody and quite frankly, embarrassing for Israel. It is likely to be, especially if you have other entities like Hezbollah getting involved. But then you have Biden in this space where he comes in and he says, oh, you know, we're going to make sure that the Palestinians get access to humanitarian aid, which they haven't had because Israel has very intentionally cut it off altogether and bombed any attempts at getting it ahead of this weekend. And in doing so, what Biden is doing is he's trying to make it look like to the public that he is open to all sides, that he's wanting to help the people of Gaza. But what he's not saying and what he's hoping that people will forget about is that the United States has the power to end all of this very quickly. The U.S. could come into Israel and say, not one more dollar. We are not going to support you until you end this complete blockade on Gaza, until you stop this ongoing bombardment and stop killing Palestinian children. And so Biden's trying to make it look like he's being the good guy here, but he is one of many U.S. politicians who is continuing to enable the bloodshed. Uh, Janet Yellen uh, said that, sure, we can afford uh, two wars. I must say, as someone who's looked at the streets of Philadelphia uh, recently, uh, uh, it doesn't actually show uh, America's not wearing its prosperity well. But Janet Yellen says uh, that, uh, sure, we can afford two wars meaning the Ukraine war and uh, a Middle East war. Uh, but of course, they're also in full battle regalia uh, in the South China Sea, in the Straits of Taiwan, uh, enforcing their right to fly on the edge of Chinese uh, territory uh, in the air and, uh, and on the sea. Uh, the, the prospect is not uh, two wars, but three wars. Uh, because, of course, Iran and China and Russia are all allies uh, with each other. Is Joe Biden serious that America can afford, not only afford financially, but can prevail? Because he says there needs a new world order. This one's run out of gas, he says. And America and him are the people and the man to build it. Are they serious, Rachel? You know, sometimes I wonder if Biden really thinks before he speaks, and this is one of those cases. I know that he has been asked about this a few times in a recent interview. He said, well, of course American can afford this because we're the United States, for God's sake, as if he's claiming that in order to be the greatest and the best country, you have to be able to afford multiple multiple wars, rather, all of which could take you to World War III, just kind of pick the route. I mean, it seems like that's where we're at at the moment. And then you've got Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen doubling down on this, claiming that the U.S. can afford this. Now, it's interesting if you look at it, because on one hand, when it comes to the money, sure, they can print as much money as they want to. But when it comes to the actual weapons and military readiness, the U.S. military is already struggling, as is trying to keep up with the demands and Ukraine, because the U.S. is still trying to support Ukraine. And so they're in a difficult position right now because they're trying to at least give something to Ukraine while at the same time trying to increase what they're giving to Israel. 
there's no way that the U.S. can handle all of this, especially when, as you noted, you've got countries like Iran, China, and Russia that are all allies with each other. So they are going to be helping each other out. So the road that the U.S. is going down right now is incredibly destructive. It makes you wonder if Joe Biden is actually thinking past his current term, if he's thinking about whether the United States will continue to exist in the next decade because this reckless road that he's on where he speaks from the Oval Office and he talks to the American people and he says that he needs Congress to approve $105 billion, well, only a small portion of that is actually for the United States, for the southern border. Then you have a major portion that is for replenishing U.S. stockpiles of weapons because the U.S. has already sent out all of its weapons, and now it's in a position where it's having to make sure that those stockpiles are replenished as if to say, oh, sorry, we already spent all of the money. Now it's up to the American people. They have to foot the bill for more for these decisions that they never got to have have a say in. So it'll be interesting to see how much money he actually gets Congress to approve. But at the end of the day, the U.S. is not setting itself up well for the years to come. Kirby said the other day uh, that the U.S. Uh, support for Ukraine was uh, reaching the end of the rope, uh, which uh, was an unfortunate metaphor, I thought, for President Zelensky, uh, who must uh, worry about a rope. Uh, being uh, being uh, uh, coming towards him at the hands of some of his soldiers, generals, maybe. Uh, the uh, If the U.S. support for Ukraine is coming to the end of the rope, uh, and the reason is, as you've just described it, they've actually literally run out of shells uh, that they can afford to send to Ukraine and can't produce new ones in anything like the number, in anything like the time. Uh, to stop what is already underway, a major Russian advance uh, around uh, Advika uh, this very evening. Uh, if you're going to add new wars on top of that, I mean, by definition, the U.S. cannot fight these wars at the same time. Is the opposition in the United States uh, rising to the occasion? It certainly isn't in Britain. Uh, the opposition outdoes itself here in being worse than the government. And that's pretty bad. I mean, it's only a few weeks ago the Republicans were telling us that Joe Biden was a chiseling crook uh, as part of a crime family and that his embarrassing mental decline was humiliating for the U.S. on the world stage. But now they look ready to follow this aging imbecile to the end of the earth. How did that come about? Yeah, you know, I think unfortunately we were in this position where you had members of Congress who were looking at Ukraine specifically and they were saying, why are we giving Ukraine a blank check? Clearly the United States is not winning in Ukraine. Clearly Ukraine isn't winning either in this ongoing proxy war with Russia. But they're asking, why did the U.S. get into this situation where they thought that they were going to see the fall of Russia with all of these sanctions that they put in place, with this huge campaign that they mounted, which did not involve direct support from the U.S. military, but involved a number of other fronts of going after Russia? Well, that clearly didn't work out. Russia is doing just fine. And it's 
also doing just fine in this ongoing war that is still going on. So you have those members of Congress that look at this. They look at someone like Zelensky, who is not grateful. He just constantly asks for more and more of the West, or rather demands it than actually asking it. And so you had some pushback where Congress was sitting there and saying, okay, we need to rethink our foreign spending. And then Israel came along. And unfortunately, many members of Congress, many politicians, whether they're on the left or the right, they seem to almost get a bit of a cloudy head when it comes to Israel. They don't think straight. They do not look at the situation and they don't say, well, hey, wait a second, Israel has been occupying these Palestinian territories for years. They have been controlling everything that the civilians there are able to access. They've been targeting and you know carrying out attacks against these civilians. Instead, they just look at it as if Israel is some singular entity and it is being attacked from all sides. And that is the only thing that should be considered. And so now you have a situation where you've got Congress saying, well, we must do whatever we can to help Israel. And they are blind to any sort of logic in this situation. And that's why you have Biden coming along and saying, "Okay, well, here's what we'll do. We'll take foreign aid for Ukraine, which he wants, and we'll combine it with aid for Israel and then throw some aid for Taiwan in there in hopes that he's going to get the members of Congress who would say no to the Ukraine aid, but then they would be very tempted by that aid for Israel and by the aid for Taiwan, because of course, even if they're not eager to go to World War III over Russia, they still may be eager for World War III over China, because that is the backwards way that it works here in the United States. So when it comes to the politicians in Washington, you are not seeing a lot of opposition, you're not seeing a lot of logic, But I do think that there is at least some logic among the American people. They're starting to see it on their ends and starting to ask questions. And of course, the hope is always that that logic will spread before it is too late. I mean, I've been doing this a long time and I've spoken coast to coast, uh, north to south in the United States on the Palestine question. And I've never seen anything like the levels of support for the Palestinian cause in the U.S. as we've witnessed over the last couple of weeks in Los Angeles, in New York, uh, but also in many less likely quarters also. And heroically, I should say, uh, in oftentimes led by Jewish Americans uh, whose heroism, courage, uh, in the uh, face of the onslaught that they, they receive as a result uh, will we'll, um, write their names in the stars. Some of our very, very finest people in the world are American Jews. And even Israeli Jews in their thousands are protesting this, even uh, soldiers in the armed forces. Is it possible to say uh, that Israel is losing the public relations battle even in the United States? You know, I think we're getting to that point. And I think if you go back to October 7th, when Hamas carried out the initial attack, obviously you have many Americans who are going to trade their Ukrainian flag for an Israeli flag, and they're going to speak out in support of Israel. But then when you had Israel's response and everything we've seen from it, you know, you're seeing thousands of civilians being killed, you're seeing just 
horrific images and videos all across social media. When people see that and they see the reality of that, they start to ask questions about, okay, why is this happening? Why are these civilians being targeted? And I agree. I think this is one of the rare times where, you know, especially comparing it to what we saw back in 2014, it seems as though now there seems to be more of an awareness about the Palestinian people, about what they have been through and what they're currently going through. And you've got people that are starting to question that unwavering loyalty to Israel. And you're right, we notably had a massive rally happen in Washington, D.C. this week that was actually led by the group Jewish Voice for Peace. You had thousands of people come together. Several of them were arrested for protesting in the U.S. Capitol, protesting peacefully, notably. And what I noticed about that was that it got very little media coverage. The mainstream media didn't want to talk about it because it didn't fit their narrative. They could not fathom of Jewish people in the United States saying that they wanted to see a ceasefire in Gaza, saying that the Palestinian people deserve to have rights and calling on the Israeli government to stop committing genocide. Because it didn't fit that narrative, then it suddenly wasn't worthy of being talked about, but at the very least, it was widely talked about on social media. And it's things like that that give people the opportunity to see just how heavily the mainstream media carries a certain narrative and the results from it and the people who suffer because of that, because they're not getting information that they need to be getting. So at the very least, now we do have wide ranging social media and it seems like more information is able to get out than we've seen in the past. Now, if Colonel Richard Senator Black is one of the most popular of the mother of all talk shows guests, my next guest is the most popular with the single record clip of 225,000 views, an audience of millions over the many times that he has appeared on the show. It's always important to hear from him because he is in Ukraine. He's a Chilean filmmaker and analyst, and he's there, he's clear, and he's present. I hope, Gonzalo Lira, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Gonzalo, I saw a very a powerful piece to, uh, from you today about the German people. Just reprise, summarize what you, what was your message to the German people in the video I saw from you today? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be on your show, and it, it's it's a delight. Thank you. Um, yeah, the piece I, I posted today is basically to the German people, because I have many friends in Germany that I am, of course, in touch with, and none of them have heard of Cy Hirsch's piece that you were discussing with Colonel Black pre previously. And I was basically emphasizing the fact that they should be uh, looking at this piece, I linked to the to the full piece that uh, Seymour Hirsch uh, wrote, and I told the German people that basically their their press and their government is lying to them by omission. Because I speak with very educated, uh, very well placed individuals in Germany, and none of them have any idea of the investigation that Cy Hirsch did that proves conclusively that it was the Americans in cahoots with the British and the North Norwegians who destroyed a vital infrastructure and is making the German people in, in so far as 
energy costs, heating costs, food costs, inflation generally, because of this, not to mention the fact that due to the loss of the Nord Stream pipelines, German industry is cratering. I mean, we are seeing, quote unquote, deindustrialization of Germany, which really means the bankruptcy of uh, small and medium and even large firms in Germany. Uh, the largest firms are actually starting to relocate to the United you know, so this is a disaster for the German economy and the German people, and they should be aware, the German people should be aware that it's their own allies that have done this to them. The Americans and the Norwegians, all of them part of NATO, which is supposed to be this defensive alliance, but rather this, the members of the own, their own alliance have declared war on them. Uh, it, it's really despicable, and it's despicable that the German government dismisses uh, Mr. Hirsch's reporting as, as just, oh, the one uh, German official who mentioned it claimed that it was just a hypothetical and it was not based on fact, which is ridiculous. Everybody knows that Cy Hirsch well, is no, an incredibly no, diligent yeah, reporter. Yeah, no, Gonzalo, no article I have ever read has more facts in it than Seymour Hirsch's deep dive into the, to the Nord Stream. Uh, the fact that it's despicable will be common currency uh, around yeah. certainly this audience, but I think uh, more widely. What? But I wanted to actually bring up something more, else, if I may. Yeah. Okay. No, the, what I wanted to bring up, uh, you had a very good discussion with Colonel Black, so I think that the issue of Nord Stream is, is pretty much settled and we're all in agreement on it. The thing that I wanted to highlight, if, if I may, is that... Um, as of last week, there has been footage that has been emerging from the front lines here in uh, Ukraine where uh, drones are dropping canisters of what seems to be chemical weapons. Uh, there has been um, various footage of what appear to be Russian soldiers uh, dying from a chemical attack. And there has been footage of, uh, of a refrigerator with dozens of canisters of what appear to be chemical weapons of some sort or another. It's not quite clear what chemicals they are. And the drones that are going to be used to drop them on them. And the people who, who filmed this video were very clearly Zelensky regime forces, and they were bragging about it. They, they, were, they allowed themselves to be very readily identified in these videos. And the thing that we have to ask ourselves are, is, are we escalating into a horrifying direction because Nobody in the American mainstream is talking about these videos of these chemical attacks that have been going on on the front line. I have seen at least two separate incidents and, and the manner in which they were filmed and the fact also of that video with that refrigerator full of these canisters of chemical weapons uh, makes it pretty clear that it is something incredibly noxious, lethal. This is chemical warfare. And the fact that nobody in the West is talking about this uh, and certainly not con uh, condemning it as they should, well, this will lead to escalation. Because, I mean, suppose that the Russians had used chemical weapons on the battlefield. There would be an uproar with these just two videos of chemical weapons and that additional video of, uh, of a refrigerator full of uh, chemical weapon canisters and drones to drop them. You know, there would be outrage in the United States, in the Western media, there'd be calls for a Security Council meeting, all kinds of brouhaha would be raised if the Russians were doing it. 
But since the Zelensky regime is doing it, and I'm very careful to identify it as the Zelensky regime, because I, I don't think that uh, decent Ukrainian people would ever condone such a thing. The Zelensky regime, since nobody is saying anything about this, now they have carte blanche to expand this use of chemical weapons. And one has to ask, what would the Russian response be to their soldiers being killed by chemical weapons? This is incredibly serious, and there isn't much enough attention being paid to this. As to what chemicals are being used, I certainly am not one to, who would know. But whatever it is, we have seen at least two separate incidents that I personally have seen. Clearly, it's something lethal. What? And the fact that there were so many canisters and so many drones in that video footage of the Zelensky regime forces bragging about how they were going to use it, this leads me to conclude that there's going to be an escalation in chemical warfare on the front. And the repercussions of this could be catastrophic. I mean, this is, we're really going into, we're marching blind into unknown territory. This is a disaster. Yeah, we're going into First World War territory, not just in uh, casualty levels, but also now in the, in the weapons that are being used, uh, which uh, I've seen referred to as uh, chlorine weapons, the very weapons that the West attacked Syria for allegedly using in Douma, uh, something which has been contested now uh, for the best part of a decade. So Syria was attacked by all of the NATO countries except Britain because our parliament stopped it uh, for allegedly using uh, exactly the same chemical weapon in Douma. Iraq, on the other hand, was literally annihilated on the suspicion that it had chemical weapons, biological weapons. We now discover that up to 46 biological weapons labs owned by, I'm not making this up, Hunter Biden and the Pentagon were actually seeded, laced uh, throughout Ukraine. There's chemical weapons, there's biological weapons. This is a descent into World War I, which could become World War III, isn't it? Yes, exactly right. Because uh, the Russians are not going to take this line down. Uh, uh, use of chemical weapons is universally condemned for reasons. It's inhumane, it's despicable, uh, you know, all the reasons, we don't have to go into them. But the point is, what will the Russian escalation to counter this be? And, yeah. and that is something that is well, we cannot uh, predict because we're yeah. in uncharted territory. We are, but let's try and examine what the different options uh, would be. We're coming up now to the uh, first anniversary of the Russian special military operation, an invasion, effectively, of uh, Russian forces into eastern Ukraine. We know the reasons the Russians have given for their doing so, but a year on, how looks the front to you? And where might we expect, in your uh, opinion, as a civilian, but as someone living not far from where the front line currently is now, uh, what might we expect to mark the anniversary of uh, 25th February? Well, likely by the 24th, 
Akhmud will have fallen. Now, this has been a major battle that has been going on off and on since August, but really it's it's been becoming an issue over the last couple of months because the Zelensky regime has been trying to defend it at all costs. They have been pouring in men and weapons into Bakhmud, and the Russians have been just grinding away at all of these men and all of this equipment. And it is a catastrophic loss for the Zelensky regime, because not only have they put a lot of military effort behind uh, holding on to this uh, particular town, the, there's also the political dimension. And it will be a huge blow to the Zelensky regime when Bakhmud eventually falls. I mean, we, we already have uh, uh, signs that it's just imminent. And further issue is that as the Russian forces are encircling Bakhmut, they're going to wind up capturing thousands of troops because that, that's kind of like the military inevitability of the situation. And so one has to wonder what will the political ramifications be? Will the Zelensky regime still endure after this catastrophic loss? And it will certainly be an incredible blow to the morale of the Zelensky regime forces. And how will that play into Russian plans? Because at this time, the Russians have assembled an enormous army surrounding Ukraine uh, in the south of Belarus on the northern border of uh, Ukraine, on the eastern border here in Belgorod, and on the south of Ukraine in the uh, in the territories that Russia has annexed or occupied as as whatever you prefer to call it. And so uh, this 700,000 man force, what are the Russians planning to do with this force? Because you don't put together an army that size for no reason, just, just because, just to see what it looks like. No, they have a very clear plan of action insofar as all those men and all that equipment, because these 700,000 men, they are loaded for bear, forgive the pun. They have uh, tanks, artillery, aircraft, everything. They are ready for something enormous. Now, what that will be, nobody knows, because the Russians have been incredibly careful insofar as their operational security. So anybody who claims to know what the Russians are up to is just speculating wildly. Everybody is just waiting to see what the Russians will do. What is clear, though, is that with this uh, amping up of the, of the Russian army around Ukraine, in the steady grind that has been going on in the Donbass, the Russians have essentially upped the volume and, and the, uh, the uh, offensive effort across the entire front. It's not only Bakhmut, it's also Vulidar. It's, it's the entire front that they are ramping up and grinding ever faster and harder. And so the, the issue becomes clearly the Russians expect some sort of breakthrough. How will they take advantage of Will they do specifically? Nobody really knows, but we are clearly coming to a uh, uh, a point of culmination insofar as this uh, conflict is concerned. The next uh, uh, two weeks to two months, we are going to see rapid changes. And it could be that this might be the straw that breaks the camel's back. We will see. But clearly something very big is on the horizon. And it's the near of, of uh, very good military analysts on both sides. And most of them agree that something this month will be happening, something very big. But what is it exactly? Will the Russian army come from uh, the north of Ukraine, out of Belarus? Will they come out of the east from uh, Belgorod and, and cut around the city of Kharkov, where I'm currently located? Will they come all, all three? 
or is there something else that they're planning? Nobody knows, but we, we are reaching a, a climactic moment and it's happening now. Uh, what will the results be of this? How big of an effort is it going to be? How, how devastating will it be? Nobody knows because depending on how devastating this uh, attack is, this offensive is, will determine whether the Zelensky regime remains in power or perhaps they flee or perhaps there's a change in government altogether in Kiev and they start negotiating with the Russians or perhaps there's a change of government and the new leaders in Kiev decide, no, we're going to fight to the bitter end. Nobody knows, but we are clearly reaching a climactic moment. And I think that your viewers should be aware of this, that uh, this conflict has been going on almost a year. It is middle of it. And I can tell you that on a mental level, it's exhausting. But right now you have to pay attention because something very, very big is on the horizon. Finally, Gonzalo, and we'll let you go because you have other commitments. Um, I, I've always thought that one possible end to this is something that you just alluded to, namely that someone, most likely in the armed forces, uh, will will decide that enough is enough, that Zelensky cannot possibly bring this war to an end, uh, and that he will be removed. He'll be overthrown. There'll be some kind of military government will emerge that will negotiate with the Russians. I've always thought that to be, in a way, the most likely ending. I read today that there are increasing tensions between the chief of the army and uh, Zelensky. Can you provide any insight into that? Well, there have been a number of, of officials who have been dismissed because of charges of corruption. Uh, the, the Minister of the Interior was killed in a helicopter accident that was rather suspect insofar as timing is concerned. Not only was he killed, but his two top deputies were killed. And furthermore, four uh, Ministry of the Interior uh, officials uh, resigned at the same time. This happened a couple of days ago. Uh, what does this mean internally insofar as Kiev politics? I could not tell you because nobody's really clear on it. What I can say is the following. The Russians have no intention of coming to any kind of agreement with Kiev. I think that they might make stabs at it, sort of like as, as, as sort of like a, a fig leaf that they're trying to negotiate. But I think that the Russians no longer believe either Kiev or the West insofar as any agreement is concerned. And my thinking at this time is that the Russians intend to capture the entire country because they believe that the West is, as they say, agreement incapable. And so they cannot trust the West in any kind of negotiations. A lot of people in the West right now are saying that maybe the conflict can be frozen and create some sort of demilitarized zone like what happened in the Korean conflict. I personally do not believe that the Russians would uh, entertain that notion of some sort of ceasefire in a DMZ uh, area, because, uh, first of all, the Russian public is very much in favor of this conflict and they want to see it through to the very end. And number two, as I said, the West and the Kiev regime have shown themselves unwilling or unable to stick with any agreement. And the fact that uh, Francois Hollande, Angela Merkel, and, um, and uh, President Poroshenko, who were the three other parties to the Minsk II agreements, 
They have publicly come out and said that the Minsk II agreements were just to buy time for Ukraine to arm itself and prepare itself for a war with uh, Russia. Well, that just leads the Russians to conclude that any kind of ceasefire that does not end with Russia holding the entirety of Ukraine up until the Polish border is not going to be worth the paper it's printed on. So I think that that is the ultimate direction of travel insofar as this conflict is concerned. Because, I mean, think of it from the point of view of the Gonzalo, lead up. Yeah. Go ahead. Last word to you. Last word to you. No, I think that th this conflict, uh, I would be extraordinarily surprised if this conflict land lasts until the end of this year. I personally think that, that with this big offensive that will be occurring between now and uh, early mid-spring, which will be decisive one way or the other, I think that this conflict will end one way or the other by, um, by the summer. This is, of course, presupposing that NATO doesn't do something incredibly foolish and perhaps try to widen this conflict by using Poland as a proxy, because that seems to be what the Polish leadership would like. They would like to get into this conflict. They have ancient hatreds of Russians of, for their own reasons, and they also have agreed for the lands of formerly the Galicia, which is the western part of Ukraine. So if this is just between NATO and Russia using Ukraine as a proxy, I think it will likely wind down by the summer. But if Poland positions itself as to the next proxy of NATO against Russia, then this conflict could go on for quite some more time. So we'll have to see. This is nobody really knows what's going to happen. But clearly something big is about to happen. Quite ghostly to see Gonzalo Lira again in his waking moments before he was taken into the darkness of a Ukrainian dungeon. His case is recently featured uh, in the work of Tucker Carlson, the most celebrated broadcaster in the whole world, the most watched broadcaster in the whole world. Our regular guest, Gonzalo Lira, was featured by Tucker Carlson. And the entirely legitimate question asked, just exactly what is the U.S. government doing to free from unjust persecution and incarceration? One of its own sons, Gonzalo Lira. Now, at this time, every week on the mother of all talk shows, I get to see my missus, my good wife, Gayatri, who joins me now for the social media roundup. What's rattling, Gayatri? Well, um, I've got here an email uh, from Belgium, and it goes as follows. Dear George, the thousands of children buried under the rubble during Christmas, left for dead, reminds me of the Anderson fairy tale about the little match girl. This girl was left to freeze to death on New Year's Eve, but at least the cruel world could spare her some matches for comfort in her final moments. Let it sink in that the world would impose such a horrific death on thousands of children on Christmas Day, however, this time without any matches to spare. Peace be with you from Thibault de Marel. And um, uh, this story of the Little Match Girl by Hans Christian Andersen uh, was published in 1845, but it's so fitting to today's situation. It is extremely sad but there is some 
hope. There's a message of hope in the story, which reflects as well in the story of Gaza. If we see how strong the people of Gaza are under the bombardment and all the suffering that is unimaginable for us, this thought, I thought this was a very fitting email from Belgium. Well, the only matches, the only candles, the only light is the apparently never-ending faith of the people in Gaza. No matter what happens to them, they thank God, they, they praise only God, they say they need nothing except God, they believe, and they believe in their heart and soul uh, in the Almighty. And one can only pray uh, that their faith is well-placed. I believe that it is. But it is remarkable that the Western world, and indeed the Eastern world, has been either unwilling or unable to deliver even a match to keep the children warm as they die under the rubble. Indeed. Following is from Sair. He says, hi, George. I have followed you and think highly of you since the Iraq war. You stood up for the truth and have been on the right side of history. George, can there be at least a no-fly zone? The hypocrite America uses its veto right. So why do other members like Russia or China not call for a no-fly zone and protect Gaza from the bombardment? And I, I should probably not have to remind you that it is this month, this week that it has been, that it's 20 years ago that they captured Saddam Hussein. And he, um, and he well, faced his uh, you'll never get a no-fly zone through the Security Council because the United States and Britain would veto it. Uh, but it's a legitimate uh, demand uh, because if it were true that the Israelis really were fighting Hamas, if it were true that their purpose in all of this sea of dead bodies was to eliminate the leaders and mid-level cadre of a resistance movement called Hamas, then they would be doing that on the ground. That's the only way to do it. If, if as they say, Hamas are down under the tunnels, what's the point of bombing all these houses and all these hospitals? It's a gigantic contradiction, which nobody ever asks them about. But if they were men at all, if they were telling the truth, they would be in the tunnels fighting Hamas. They would be there on the ground in significant numbers fighting it out against the targets they say that they are determined to destroy. But yes, wearing those cams on their courage. chest so that the people in the boardroom can yes. watch every move. Yes, exactly. Like uh, the killing of, uh, of uh, Bin Laden. Uh, they, 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 we could all see it, but of course that yeah. would take more courage uh, than they have. So it's easier by far to just massacre well, the Palestinian yes. people above yes. ground and, 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 and then um, pretend that this was a war against Hamas. Well, um, I want to just echo what you just said through the message from Stephanie Carroll on, on the Patreon, who says, the IDF's execution of defenseless men, women, and children in a UN school is not just horrific, it's supreme cowardice. They don't have the guts to face 
real fighting men, so they pick on those who can't fight back. All bullies are cowards. So exactly as you said. And then finally, a message from Ahara. He says he's coming up with a suggestion uh, for a new slogan. How about from east to west, a free Palestine is best. Well, uh, O'Hara, did you say a great Irish name? Reminded me as you were speaking of uh, the great song by Dominic Bean, one of the refrains of which was, come out ye black and tans, come out and fight me like a man. It's a miserable Christmas for many millions of people, none more miserable than that faced by the people of Gaza, of Jerusalem, of the West Bank, of South Lebanon. But there are bright hopes, and one of those is the army of God far, far away in Yemen, who are showing daily what it means to really be soldier. Thank you very much, Gayatri, uh, for those uh, emails and messages. I look forward not just to working with you, but to being married to you uh, over the next 12 months and much longer than that. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's been, I hope, a worthwhile special edition uh, of the Mother of All Talk Shows. You haven't been able to call, but you have been able to watch, and you will be able to share. But next week, on New Year's Eve, you definitely will be able to join us, all guns blazing, on another special Mother of All Talk Shows, live and interactive. It's been my honor uh, to talk with you, to conduct these proceedings, throughout all of 2023. And I hope God gives me the breath to do so for many more years to come. Despite everything, I hope you all have a peaceful Christmas tomorrow and that you and your loved ones can enjoy each other's company without harm. It's been marvelous. Thanks for joining me on the Mother of All Talk Show. 